Over the years, the Based on a True Story podcast has been around. Whenever I get asked what the show is about, I like to say that we look at the true story behind some of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters. Then, inevitably, I'll mention a movie that I'm almost certain the person I'm talking to has heard about. For example, just last week, we learned about The Greatest Showman. That movie cost about $84 million to create and has made back over twice that amount for the filmmakers. So there's a good chance that whomever I'm talking about has either seen the movie or at least heard of it. But I'll be the first to admit that we don't always cover Hollywood's biggest blockbusters here on the show. Today, we're going to look at a movie that was released in June of last year and, as of this recording, has still made less than three times the amount of money that The Greatest Showman made on its first day at the box office. The Catcher Was a Spy has grossed just over $700,000, while The Greatest Showman made about $2.4 million on its first day in theaters. So I wouldn't exactly call The Catcher Was a Spy a blockbuster movie, and it might be one that you've never heard of before. But hopefully, after today's episode, you'll be inspired to dig deeper into this incredible story. It's a story filled with a mix of sports and spies. It's the story of a man named Mo Berg played by Paul Rudd in the film, who was a Jewish man that spent 15 years playing Major League Baseball before risking his life behind the scenes inside Nazi Germany as a spy for the United States during World War II. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before starting our story today, there's two things we need to do. First, let's set up our game, two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Moberg almost killed German physicist Werner Heisenberg. Number two, Moberg was a spy for the CIA. Number three, Moberg shot footage of Tokyo Bay before World War II began. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Oh, and speaking of big budget movies, as well as World War II spy movies, Next week, based on our True Story producers, are going to get a mini-sode covering the movie called Allied. That's the $113 million budget film directed by Robert Zemeckis, starring Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard as two spies who fall in love during the war. It's sort of based on a true story, and it's sort of not, but you'll get that on the producer's feed next week. If you aren't on the producer's feed, you can get access to that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. For today, though, let's learn about the story of Mo Berg as told in The Catcher Was a Spy. The movie opens, as many do, with some text that sets up our scene. Reading the opening text, we learn that it was in the year 1938 when German scientists figured out how to split the atom for the first time. That's what gave birth 
to the nuclear age. The text goes on to say that the Nazis gave the task of building an atomic bomb to a Nobel Prize winning physicist named Werner Heisenberg. Then it claims that the U.S. government responded to this by sending a Jewish baseball player named Morris or Mo Berg to assassinate him. Finally, we see that text we're so familiar with here on the podcast based on a true story. The general idea of that text is true, but there's more to the story. You see, even though 1938 might have been the first time German scientists split an atom, it might be a bit of a stretch to say that that was when the nuclear age was born. That story began a little over two decades earlier in 1917 when a New Zealand-born physicist named Ernest Rutherford claimed to have split the atom for the first time. Although some historians give the year as 1919, which is also valid since that's when Rutherford's published research was actually submitted to the world. This research marks the discovery of protons and electrons, two building blocks for atoms. But then it wasn't until 1932 when one of Rutherford's colleagues, a man named James Chadwick, discovered a third subatomic particle, neutrons. Two years later, an Italian physicist named Enrico Fermi ran an experiment that caused the creation of new radioactive elements. But he didn't really recognize exactly what he'd done at first. For the purposes of our story today, though, what the movie is referring to is when three German physicists named Otto Hahn, Lise Mittner, and Fritz Strassmann teamed up to build on those who came before them. Then, in 1938, after Mittner fled the Nazi party's rise to power in Germany, Hahn and Strassmann became the first to officially acknowledge the process of splitting uranium atoms into two or more parts. So, that is what the movie is referring to. And it is true that a Nobel Prize winning physicist named Werner Heisenberg was tasked by the Nazis to build an atomic bomb. Well, maybe. Heisenberg was nominated by Albert Einstein for the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1928, but he didn't win the prize until 1932. And it's worth pointing out that Heisenberg was attacked by the Nazis during their rise to power in the early to mid-1930s as a, quote, white Jew, unquote, and as someone who needed to disappear. But then the tune changed in 1939 when, on September 1st of that year, the Nazis began their nuclear program. That's the same day World War II officially began after Germany invaded Poland, which, in turn, sparked France and the United Kingdom to declare war on Germany. The reason this outbreak of war has anything to do with Germany's nuclear weapons program is because, according to the Treaty of Versailles that was signed at the end of World War I, Germany's military was severely limited. People didn't want the world to break out into another war, so they forced a cap on what Germany could produce. Of course, it's been proven that as the Nazis rose to power, they secretly disregarded the treaty and built up their military in anticipation of war. Was the nuclear program a part of that? Maybe. Some historians think perhaps it was and that the date of September 1st, 1939 being the start of their program was merely a formality to coincide with the official start of the war. Regardless, for our story today, as one of the nation's leading physicists, Werner Heisenberg was one of the men who was wrapped up in the Nazis' nuclear weapons program. How willing of a participant was he in that program? Well, that's something that many people still debate to this day. 
As with most things that involve top-secret members of military, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Going back to the movie, after the brief opening sequence set in Zurich, Switzerland in December of 1944, where we really don't learn much about Mo, the film then cuts back in time to when Mo is playing baseball. The text on screen tells us that it's eight years earlier, so if it was December of 1944 before, that would mean eight years earlier would be 1936. And because the movie takes us right to a Boston Red Sox game, I would guess that it's not in December since baseball season takes place over summer. After the game ends, we see Paul Rudd's version of Mo Berg sitting in Joe Cronin's office. Uh, Joe Cronin, by the way, is played by Shea Wigham in the movie. The conversation between the two ball players starts with Joe asking Mo if he'll turn in his cleats to help them coach the team. Mo turns him down, insisting that he can still play. We get the sense that it isn't the first time Joe has asked Mo to turn to coaching. In fact, there's a moment where Joe says he's been asking Mo to hang up his cleats for two years to go into coaching. For this scene, though, the conversation turns to an upcoming trip to Japan for some exhibition games after the season ends. Mo asks who's going. Joe says it'll be Murderer's Row, Ruth, Gehrig, Avril, Geringer, Gomez. Mo interrupts him. Am I the only bum? Joe laughs, saying that they like the whole Professor Berg thing. Oh, and also that you speak Japanese. I speak Japanese? Who said that? Kieran, in one of his columns, Joe replies. Mo is heading out the door when he answers with a simple, interesting. This whole conversation is highly dramatized, but its purpose in the movie is really to help bring up some very real facts. Let's start with Joe Cronin. He was a real person and really was the manager of the Boston Red Sox. Although it is interesting that the movie has Joe mentioned trying to get Mo into coaching for two years because Joe Cronin didn't become the manager of the Red Sox until 1935. So if this scene took place in 1936, then 
Joe wouldn't have been manager there for two years. Unless, of course, the movie's version of Joe Cronin is talking about a couple years back when he and Mo Berg played together on the Washington Senators. Joe was the Senator's manager for his last year there, too, although Mo had a brief stint with the Cleveland Indians between his time on the Senators and being reunited with Joe Cronin on the Red Sox. Another small but interesting point here is how Joe tries to get Mo to hang up his cleats to coach. While it might make sense in today's game of baseball where players and coaches are different, that wasn't always the case. In fact, when Joe Cronin was traded to the Boston Red Sox in 1935, not only was he the starting shortstop for the team, but he was also their manager. Being a player manager was a lot more common back then, so it's not like Moe would have had to have hung up his cleats to be a coach. He probably could have done both, especially since, as the movie implies, Moe Berg didn't play a lot. The movie is correct there when it talks about Moe's playing record compared to the likes of the others on the exhibition trip to Japan. The other names they mention, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Charlie Geringer, Earl Averill, and Lefty Gomez, were all baseball players who made their way into the Hall of Fame. They were the best of the best in their day and are still considered some of the greatest to play the game in all time. Moe Berg, on the other hand, didn't make it to the Hall of Fame with his career, although he did get a handful of votes. If you're a baseball fan, you'll get a sense of how good he was offensively with his career stat line. He played in 663 games, 1,813 at-bats, scored 150 runs, had a 441 hits for a 243 batting average, had six home runs in his career, 206 RBIs, and 12 stolen bases. Granted, those aren't defensive stats, but you get the idea. You can get a sense for how often he played by looking at his at-bats. Playing 15 years, those stats are for 15 years. He had 1,813 at-bats, so that's roughly 120 at-bats per year. That's not very many. For a bit of context, back then there were 154 games in a major league season. Today there's 162, but at an average game, starters will probably get three or four at-bats. So only 120 at-bats on average per season basically means that Moberg did not play a lot. If he were a Hall of Famer like Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig, for one, you'd already know who he was. <laughs> but from the stats alone, he would have been playing in a lot more games. In fact, there was only one year in 1929 when Mo played more than 100 games. Oh, and as a quick side note, the nickname mentioned, Murderer's Row, that Joe Cronin says, that was one for the 1920s Yankees lineup that many historians consider to be the best team in the history of baseball. More specifically, it started with the 1927 lineup, one that included Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, but did not include Earl Avril, Charlie Geringer, and Lefty Gomez. But with all of that said, the movie is correct in mentioning that Moberg was one of the players who joined some of the best players in baseball in Japan for some exhibition games. The movie doesn't mention that a couple other legends went on the tour as well, Connie Mack and Jimmy Fox. The timeline is a bit off. If the movie is saying the scene where Mo and Joe are talking about going to Japan is after the season happened in 1936, you see that would be a little bit late because the All-Americans baseball team that toured 12 cities in Japan happened in 1934. It's also worth pointing out that the 1934 trip to Japan wasn't the first time Mo went to Japan. 
Moe was one of three major leaguers to go to Japan in 1927 to teach baseball to teams over there. The other two baseball players joining Moe on that trip were Lefty O'Doul and Ted Lyons. Back in the movie, the next major plot point happens while Moe is still in Japan. It's pretty subtle in that the movie doesn't come out and really say anything, but it's the exact opposite of subtle in that it's clear what the movie is saying when we see Moe meet up with a Japanese man. Then, later, we see a shirtless Paul Rudd as Moe Berg wakes up in an empty bed, but one with room for two. The implication here is very clear. This continues a thread from earlier in the movie when another player on the Red Sox beats up Moe because he thinks Moe is homosexual, or at least he tries to beat up Moe. Moe retaliates. This whole storyline is in contrast to Sienna Miller's character in the film, Estella, who we see Moe living and having a clearly romantic relationship with. And not to get too far ahead of our story, but there's a moment where Bill Donovan, who's played by Jeff Daniels, straight up asks if Moe is gay. The reply from Paul Rudd's version of Moe is simply that he's good at keeping secrets. That might be true, but it's probably not. By that, what I mean is that there's never been any evidence to suggest that Moe Berg was gay. Where the movie gets this from is a rumor that floated around surrounding Moe's sexual orientation. A big part of that was due to the fact that Moe Berg wasn't very good at close personal relationships. In fact, he shied away from them. He especially shied away from them when it came to female companions. He had some relationships that led to sex, but none that really seemed to last. When it started to get more serious, Moe backed away. The one exception was Estella. The movie never mentions her name, but it was Honey, H-U-N-I. Estella Honey was the only person that Moe Berg had a lasting relationship with, and even then, it was not lifelong. Moe ended up breaking that off too. We don't know of any similar relationships that Moe had with men. In the end, yes, there was a rumor about Moe's sexual orientation while he was alive, but then there were also people who simply thought Moe wasn't sexually interested in anyone, man or woman. None of those rumors were ever confirmed nor denied. In fact, a lot of reviews for the movie have criticized the film for trying to imply so heavily Moe's sexual orientation when, in truth, he kept his sexual preferences, whatever they might have been, a secret. So, as we often must do, we'll never know for sure one way or another. Maybe, as the movie implies, Moe was gay and was also good at keeping secrets. Or, maybe, Moe was someone who just couldn't let himself get too close to anyone, man or woman. Going back to the movie, it's while we see Paul Rudd's version of Moe Berg in Japan that we see him walking down a hallway of a hospital. He sneaks up to the roof, then we see him pulling out a camera from his kimono. In solitude, on the hospital's roof, Moe proceeds to shoot footage of Tokyo's harbor. That's true, but seeing as the movie doesn't really explain anything going on around that scene, there's more to that story. And the truth is, it's really hard to know what the reason behind people's decisions are. But what we do know is that on November 29, 1934, the American ballplayers were playing a game in Omiya. That's on the northeastern side of Japan. And then for some reason, Mo Berg decided to leave the team and head off to St. Luke's Hospital in Tokyo. That's located near Tokyo Bay. Although, I say for some reason, as if he just stumbled over there, his reason, or perhaps I should say the reason that he gave for leaving the team and going to Tokyo was to visit the American ambassador's daughter, who was a patient at the hospital. 
And since Mo wasn't the star on a team filled with players like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, his absence probably wasn't missed. While he was there, though, he took the opportunity to slip up to the roof of the hospital. and From there, he shot some footage of Tokyo Harbor. It helped that the hospital was one of the tallest buildings around, giving Mo a great vantage point. A nice coincidence? Or was it a coincidence? Was Mo Berg at this point simply a ball player, really visiting the ambassador's daughter? Did he just want to go to the roof to get some footage for his own personal collection? Or was there something more to Mo's intentions that made him go up there? It's the sort of thing that really helps grow potential conspiracies. And only adding to that is the fact that Mo never made it to visit the ambassador's daughter. Back in the movie, even while we see Paul Rudd's version of Moberg filming on the rooftop, we can hear President Franklin D. Roosevelt's famous Day of Infamy speech. The camera cuts to Mo and Estella back in the United States. The two are sitting on their couch in stunned silence as they're listening to President Roosevelt's speech on the radio. The text on screen tells us that this is December 1941. After this, Mo is at a black tie affair at Princeton when he runs into Jerry Fredericks. He's played by Ben Miles in the movie. Mo gets right to the point. He asks Jerry if he's working in D.C. and before long it's clear that Mo wants to work there too. Jerry says there's room for people with languages, and says he knows Mo can speak French, German, and Italian. What else? Mo says he speaks German, Dutch, and all of the Romance languages. He goes on to say his Italian has an accent. He can speak Turkish, Arabic, and Farsi, but pretty heavily accented. He also speaks Latin and some basic Hindi, Mandarin, and Cantonese. Jerry asks about his Italian. Switching to Italian, Mo says, judge for yourself. I'd call it passable. He said that in Italian, which I'm not going to do because I can't speak Italian. <laughs> it is true that Moberg spoke multiple languages. He and Estella would frequently talk to each other in French. She also spoke multiple languages. That was probably the language, other than English, of course, that Mo was most familiar with, that language being French. But by the time World War II broke out for the U.S., he hadn't really used it much in decades. Alongside French, Mo self-described his Spanish and Portuguese as fair. These two probably because by the time he was in the OSS, he had just spent some time in Central and South America for different government organizations, but we'll learn about that here in a little bit. As for the other languages the movie mentions, it is true that Mo spoke them too. Well, sort of. Like many of the languages Mo knew, he listened to them better than he spoke them. And when he did, he often spoke them with such a thick accent that he would stand out to natural speakers. But other than English, French, Spanish, and Portuguese, Moberg also knew Italian, German, some Japanese. He knew Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, Hebrew, and Yiddish, and some German, Mandarin, Bulgarian, Arabic, Polish, and Old High German. Needless to say, Moberg was a smart guy who knew quite a few languages. Back in the movie, after Jerry tests Moe's language skills, he asks if Moe knows about Bill Donovan. Yeah, I know about Bill, Moe replies. Yale, football, Medal of Honor in 1918. Jerry explains that Bill is his boss. They're setting up a small adjunct to the State Department. Then he gives Moe a number to call. In the next scene, we see some text on screen that says it's the OSS headquarters in Washington, D.C., Mo Berg is there to give them the footage. 
It's here that we meet the guy we mentioned briefly before, Bill Donovan. He's played by Jeff Daniels in the film. And according to the movie, it's the footage that Moe delivers to the OSS as why Bill invites Moe to join the organization. That footage being the stuff that he shot on the rooftop of the hospital. This is all, well, it's mostly true. For example, that mention from Paul Rudd's version of Moe Berg about Bill Donovan as being a Medal of Honor recipient in 1918, that is true. That came as the result of an event that took place in France on October 14th and 15th in 1918. Here's the official statement from the U.S. Army's website. Lieutenant Colonel Donovan personally led the assaulting wave in an attack upon a very strongly organized position. And when our troops were suffering heavy casualties, he encouraged all near him by his example, moving among his men in exposed positions reorganizing decimated platoons and accompanying them forward in attacks. When he was wounded in the leg by machine gun bullets, he refused to be evacuated and continued with his unit until it withdrew to a less exposed position. And the end result of what we see is, of course, that Moe joined the OSS. But there's more to the story that the movie skips. By that, what I mean is that it was Pearl Harbor that pushed Moe to become a spy, and the footage that he shot was given to the U.S. government. So in a way, the movie is accurate there. But it's oversimplified because Moe didn't go straight to the OSS after Pearl Harbor, right after Pearl Harbor, like the movie makes it seem. Instead, the truth is that it was more of a roundabout path to the OSS. Perhaps a big part of that is because... Well, as you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor took place on December 7th, 1941. The Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, didn't even exist until it was established in June of 1942. But it was William J. Donovan, or Bill, as the movie calls him, who oversaw the formation of the OSS, an agency that dissolved at the end of World War II and folded into what we know of today as the CIA. As the 1930s were coming to a close, a war was about to begin. Germany invaded Poland in 1939 to begin a conflict that would turn into World War II. President Roosevelt had a growing concern over the lack of intelligence in the U.S. government. So he tapped Bill Donovan to come up with a plan for a U.S. intelligence organization based on the U.K.'s MI6. He did, and the British were instrumental in helping set up the organization including providing a lot of training and information leading up to President Roosevelt's military order to establish the organization on June 13, 1942. But that's getting a little ahead of our story. So it was due to the attack on Pearl Harbor that Moberg wanted to do something more than play baseball. Well, that's not quite right. At this point in Moe's career, he wasn't playing anymore. He was a coach for the Red Sox. So Moe's actual final playing year was 1939. Probably the biggest inaccuracy of the movie came with the character of Jerry Fredericks being the connection to Moe and the OSS. Jerry's a fictional character, you see. If he was based on someone, it would probably be an OSS officer named Ellery Huntington. But we'll get to Ellery in a bit, because in truth, Moe didn't go to the OSS first. He tried the FBI first. They weren't interested in hiring an ex-ball player. So, in January of 1942, Mo took a position at the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs. That mouthful of a government organization was run by Nelson Rockefeller, who would go on to become the 41st Vice President of the United States under Gerald Ford. 
The purpose of the OCIAA was to improve commercial and economic relationships between countries in the Americas. And so it was Rockefeller who had expressed an interest in Moberg, the multilingual catcher that he wanted to help put together a sports program in South and Central America. All of that was to help improve U.S. relations with the countries there, especially since there was growing concern that Japan might find a way to attack the U.S. through one of those countries. After being rejected by the FBI and still wanting to help the U.S. in the wake of the attack on Pearl, Moberg decided to officially retire from Major League Baseball and agreed to join the OCIAA for just over $155 per week. That salary would equate to about $8,060 per year, or in today's U.S. dollars, that'd be about an annual salary of $123,000. Sadly, before he could start his new job, Moe's dad passed away. That was on January 14, 1942. A week later, on the 21st, Moe took his oath of office and officially began his new career for the OCIAA. But that new career didn't get off to a great start. In fact, it hardly started at all. Due to the chaos of the war that had just began, Moe's initial six-month trip around South and Central American countries was delayed, postponed, and then delayed again. Anxious to do something, this delay was the real cause for why Moe got in touch with the OSS. He asked if he could be of service, perhaps broadcasting a long-distance radio message to the Japanese. They agreed to let him do that, and he broadcast messages along the lines of explaining how the two countries both loved baseball. Why are we fighting? Well, this didn't make Mo Berg the newest OSS employee. It was the first contact with the organization for Mo. And it seemed like working for an intelligence gathering agency like the OSS was something that he liked. We don't know the exact timing or specifics, but the basic gist of the story goes that while he was working for the OCIAA, at one point in a meeting with the FBI, Moe asked if he could be of any assistance. The reply was that they would appreciate any information he might have that he thought would be of interest to them. That reminded Moe of the footage that he shot. He offered to show it to them. They agreed, and so he did. Of course, that didn't happen in a single meeting, it took place over the course of the entire summer of 1942. During that time, the OSS got a whiff of the footage, and by July 17, 1942, Moe had shown the footage to them. We don't really know if he showed it to Bill Donovan directly, like the movie shows, but we do know that he didn't show it just once. It was multiple times to different people. One clue as to the OSS's interest in the film came from a letter that Moe wrote to his mother toward the end of July in 1942, as he explained to her, the footage was going to be used for the pilots who were going to bomb Tokyo. In a later letter, he wrote to another family member that the government was using the footage to help figure out where the different buildings were in Tokyo Bay. It seemed that the U.S. military was preparing for an attack on Tokyo, and Mo's footage, even though it was years old, was incredibly helpful to help them plan the operation. Looking back through history, we know that retaliation against Tokyo today as the Doolittle Raid the unlikely air attack on Tokyo by B-25 bombers launching from carriers to strike at the heart of Japan. Except, as a student of history, I'm sure you're saying, there's a big problem here. It has to do with the timeline. Doolittle's planes bombed Tokyo on April 18, 1942. That's three months 
before Mo's letters suggest the use of his footage to plan the bombing of Tokyo. And herein lies the problem. We don't really know if Mo Berg's footage was used for the Doolittle raid. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It's a debated item that, honestly, we just don't know the answer to. But with that said, most historians think that it's probably not likely that his footage was used due to both the timing, but also the age of the footage itself. Remember, Mo's footage was shot in 1934. To be more specific, it was shot seven years, four months, and 20 days prior to the Doolittle Raid. And while there's months of planning for the raid beforehand, a city's landscape can change in seven years. But then again, not as much as you think. The core landmarks and buildings would be the same. Beggars can't be choosers, and it's not like the U.S. military could pop open Google Earth and get accurate depictions of what Tokyo Bay looked like. So, as you can see, there's good points on both sides of the argument. Maybe one day, we'll know for sure. Before we hop back into the movie's timeline, though, let's get the historical timeline straight, because as the movie shows, Moberg went straight to the OSS after Pearl Harbor with his footage. As we learned, that's not quite true. So, let's just clarify this timeline, kind of do a recap. In early 1942, that's when Mo joined the OCIAA. As we learned, originally the plan was for Mo to help build relationships with countries in the Americas through sports, but that changed. His primary task at the OCIAA changed from that sports-related relationship improvement to helping to improve the lives of soldiers at bases in Central and South America. He worked with them for a little over a year until he resigned in June of 1943. His primary reason for wanting to leave was because... After traveling to many of the countries in Central and South America, Mo simply didn't think they posed a very big threat to the United States. Initially, there was a thought that perhaps the Japanese would attack the U.S. through connections in countries like Peru, but it didn't really seem that that was possible. As time went on, that seemed less and less possible. And so Mo decided that he wanted to help somewhere that he would have a bigger impact on the war effort. That's why he resigned the OCIAA. That's also where the OSS comes back into the picture because Mo and some of his colleagues at the OCIAA knew the OSS was looking for people like them, people who could blend into a foreign country, gather information, and then disappear. Remember when I mentioned the character of Jerry Fredericks as a fictional character? Well, it was a former lawyer who was now working in the OSS named Ellery Huntington who was Mo's connection. Although the movie's connection with the fictional Jerry knowing Mo through Princeton is true, it's just that Ellery knew Mo through Princeton. But that wasn't their only connection. In fact, it's not likely that that was the connection that led Ellery to recruit Mo. The movie never mentions this, but Ellery and Mo worked together at a law firm in Chicago. That happened during the winter of 1930, after the baseball season was over. It was an extremely bad year, statistically, for Mo. He only hit 115 and played in 20 games the entire year. There's no doubt Mo thought his baseball career might be over, so he went to work at a law firm. But his career wasn't over. The Cleveland Indians picked him up in 1931. Mo's next season wasn't too great, but it was enough to keep him in baseball. Who knows what would have happened if he hadn't continued his baseball career? Would he have been invited to the 1934 trip to Japan? Would he have shot that footage that might have been used in the Doolittle Raid? There's a lot of what-ifs in that story. 
As for Ellery Huntington, though, having worked with Moe, he thought the former catcher would fit into the OSS fairly well. And so it was that just two months after Moe retired from the OCIAA in June so that he could do more for the war effort, he took a job at the OSS. And in the process, Moe took a massive pay cut. If you remember, Moberg was making about $8,060 per year for the OCIAA, or roughly $123,000 today. Well, Moe's new salary at the OSS was about $3,800 per year. That's roughly $55,000 today. That doesn't even mention that the work for the OSS was certainly riskier, but talking about that, we get ahead of our story. Now that we know how Mo made his way into the OSS, let's hop back into the movie's timeline where we see the grand finale of the film center around the plot of a major assignment for Mo Berg inside the OSS. According to the movie, the U.S. military believed that a German physicist by the name of Werner Heisenberg is working on an atomic bomb for the Nazis, and they task Mo Berg with finding out if that's true. Not only that, but in the movie, we see Mo is ultimately tasked with killing the physicist and stop the atomic bomb from being completed. It's at this point in the film we're sent back to the place where we were in the opening sequence. Remember that one I briefly mentioned where I said we didn't learn much about Moberg? There's two men walking down a deserted street. Well, almost deserted. There's one car's headlights on in the distance. This is when we find out Mo is there on a mission to kill Werner Heisenberg. After attending a lecture that Heisenberg is teaching, the two lock eyes again in a more private setting of a dinner amongst friends. It's after this meal with a full table that includes Heisenberg that Mo overhears conversation where Heisenberg explains he elected to stay in Germany that happens to be Nazi. The implication there being Heisenberg doesn't like being in the Nazi party. In fact, he tries to stay away from the political discussions going on around him even once suggesting he was once a citizen of the world and hopefully in the future will be one again. All of this Mo overhears from across the room. When Heisenberg leaves, Mo takes his leave and follows. Oh, and Werner Heisenberg is played by Mark Strong in the film. Mo, who is using the fake name of Anton Aziz, tracks down Heisenberg after the dinner and eventually holds the physicist at gunpoint. It's the moment he's been waiting for, a chance to end the Nazi atomic program by taking out this one man. Mo decides to not kill Heisenberg. He leaves, letting Heisenberg live. This whole idea that Mo Berg was sent to Germany to kill Heisenberg has some truth, but it really wasn't his primary purpose for being there. You see, he was sent there to observe Heisenberg and see how close Germany was to an atomic bomb. And then, if Mo determined that they were very close, he had the green light to kill Heisenberg as a way of slowing down the Germans. Although, I couldn't find anything in my research to indicate that there was this dinner that we see in the movie. And I also couldn't find anything to indicate that Mo's cover name was Anton Aziz, like the movie shows. But that said, though, I think we can give the movie a break. At home in America, Moberg didn't hide the fact that he was Jewish, but it would make sense for Moberg to go by a fake name while he was investigating the Nazi atomic program. Did he get as close to pulling a pistol on Heisenberg before making that decision? Maybe. 
I just couldn't find anything to prove that. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. As you can guess, for a lot of top secret operations, even decades later, there are details that we just don't know. What we do know is that it was in December of 1944 that Moberg went to Zurich, Switzerland to attend a lecture given by Werner Heisenberg. After the lecture, it was Moe's determination that the Germans were not very close to an atomic weapon. As a result, he didn't try to kill Heisenberg. At the end of the movie, there's some text to explain how things ended for the would-be assassin and his target. According to this text, Werner Heisenberg ended up revealing the location of the Nazi stockpile of heavy water to the Allies. As far as I can tell from my research, that is true, but it didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. You see, Werner Heisenberg was captured by the Allies on May 3rd, 1945. Germany surrendered on May 5th, two days later. If you want to dig more into this, do a search for the Farmhouse Transcripts. That's the name of the British MI6 location where Heisenberg and nine other German scientists were held after their capture. And as it turns out, the conversations that they had were recorded. The transcripts for those were released in 1992 and unveiled a lot about the really what the scientists thought about what was going on. For the most part, it seemed that they were happy that the Allies won the war. As for Mo Berg, the next bit of text on screen says that he never got back together with Estella. It then continues to say Estella married a young naval officer in 1945. That's true. As we learned earlier, Mo wasn't very good at getting close to people. Estella was probably the most intimate relationship he had with anyone, but even that was a relationship that didn't survive the war. On February 26, 1945, Estella married a lieutenant named C.R. Khan Jr. But at this point, Mo Berg was still a part of the OSS. That would change, though, because on September 20, 1945, the Office of Strategic Services was formally dissolved. Soon after the formal dissolution of the OSS, Mo was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Truman on October 10, 1945. In December of the same year, he turned down the Medal of Freedom. He was frustrated that the OSS had been dissolved and there was so much work left to do. Sure, the war was over, but tensions between countries around the world were still high. Of course, as government work often goes, just because the agency dissolved didn't mean that everyone was immediately out of a job, but it did mean that their future was shaky. After all, it wasn't until almost two years after the OSS was dissolved that the CIA rose out of its ashes. That happened on September 18, 1947. Moberg didn't stay with the agency that long, though. In January of 1946, he resigned his post at the OSS. For much of the remainder of his life, Mo didn't work. He mostly lived off family and relatives. On May 29th, 1972, at 70 years old, Mo fell at home. He was rushed to the hospital. Talking to the nurse, he still had baseball on his mind. He asked her, How did the Mets do today? Sadly, he died before she could tell him that they managed to score four runs in the top of the ninth to come from behind and beat the St. Louis Cardinals by a score of 7-6. to six. After his death, Mo's sister, Ethel, received the President's Medal of Freedom, on his behalf. This is the citation that went along with the medal. 
Mr. Morris Berg, United States civilian, rendered exceptionally meritorious service of high value to the war effort from April 1944 to January 1946. In a position of responsibility in the European theater, he exhibited analytical abilities and a keen planning mind. He inspired both respect and constant high level of endeavor on the part of his subordinates, which enabled his section to produce studies and analysis vital to the mounting of American operations. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. To learn more about the real story behind Moberg's life, the best place to start is the book that the movie was based on. It's a book by author Nicholas Davidoff called The Catcher Was a Spy, The Mysterious Life of Mo Berg. I'll include a link to that book, more books, and plenty of resources for you to dive even deeper into the life of Mo Berg over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Moberg almost killed German physicist Werner Heisenberg. Number two, Moberg was a spy for the CIA. Number three, Moberg shot footage of Tokyo Bay before World War II began. Did you find out which one is a lie? Well, as we learned, even though Moberg didn't kill Werner Heisenberg, he almost did. After all, he was sent to a Heisenberg lecture with the green light to assassinate the German physicist if he determined the Germans were close to building a bomb. Of course, he didn't do that, but not because he didn't have the chance to, but because he determined that they weren't close. So, I would say that still makes number one true. We also learned that in 1934, Mo climbed to the roof of a hospital to shoot some footage of Tokyo Bay. So number three is true. That means that the lie is number two. As we learned, Moberg worked for the OSS during World War II. That was the United States' predecessor to the CIA, but since Mo resigned in 1946 and the CIA was not established until 1947, that means Moberg was not a member of the CIA. That brings us to an end of this episode. If you're a Based on a True Story producer, I look forward to chatting with you again next Monday when we'll continue talking spies during World War II as we look at some of the history from the movie Allied. That's the 2016 film starring Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard about two spies from different nations that fall in love. So I hope to chat with you again next Monday over on the producer's feed. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.